The Politics of Everything is on a break this week. The episode you're about to hear originally aired on September 7th, 2022. I'm literally shaking right now. Please just stay and listen to this because it's really, really important. In June, Abigail Silverman posted this PSA on her TikTok. She'd eaten a package of lentil and leek crumbles from the vegan food company Daily Harvest. The following day, I started having extreme stomach and gastro pain and went to the hospital, the ER, in the middle of the night. When I was in the ER, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I had elevated liver levels, and then there was some bacteria in my urine. They thought I had a UTI, gave me antibiotics for five days. I went home. The five days of antibiotics go by, and then immediately I started getting this pain again. But it was even worse, and I had 101.8 fever. Abigail was far from the only person to get very sick after eating the crumbles. Her TikTok was flooded with comments. Other creators on TikTok were posting their own videos about being sick. Daily Harvest received hundreds of reports of illness. Over 100 people were hospitalized. The company's now also facing a class action lawsuit. The story is strange on several levels. Most people don't really know what crumbles are. Daily Harvest also projected this aspirational lifestyle. Healthy living was its brand, but suddenly people were having these horrible symptoms. What might be most surprising is that this type of outbreak is not even that unusual in the U.S. Romaine lettuce has been linked to recent outbreaks of E. coli and listeria. And earlier this year, the FDA traced cases of hepatitis A across multiple states to fresh organic strawberries. The Daily Harvest fiasco is a mystery within a mystery. There's the question of how something as harmless-seeming as lentils and leeks could lead to hospitalization, as well as a bigger question. Why are so many foods causing illness? I'm Laura Marsh. And I'm Alex Perrine. This is The Politics of Everything. The first thing we want to unravel is what exactly happened at Daily Harvest. We're talking with Madison Malone-Kircher. She's a reporter at The New York Times who followed the Crumble situation as it developed on ICYMI, the podcast she used to co-host. Madison, we saw signs of a problem at Daily Harvest earlier this year. What food are we talking about? We are talking about what is now known infamously as the French lentil and leek crumble. And it is important to note that the <laughs> and is stylized like a plus sign. Mm -hmm. Stylization of branding is very important to Daily Harvest. So this was like aspirational food. Totally. The entire brand is driven by beautiful, quote-unquote, clean aesthetics. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow was an investor. That's the energy we're coming at this with. Mm -hmm. And so the French lentil leek crumbles, <clears throat> say that five times fast, <laughs> were one of their newer products. Some PR packages had gone out to folks to try them. People had started purchasing the crumbles. And coincidentally, mm, around the same time, people eating them started to get sick, really really sick, like immediately after consuming these crumbles. So people started to think, huh, maybe they're connected. I don't normally think of food arriving via PR, but PR packages of food went to people. What sort of people did these PR packages of food go to? We're talking about influencers and content creators when we talk about who's getting these PR packages. So anyone who has enough of a platform that Daily Harvest would think, hey, if we send them this food, maybe they'll cook it and eat it and talk about it on their platforms and advertise it mm. for us. So when we're talking about people getting sick, we're not just talking about your sort of like run-of-the-mill food poisoning, felt a bit iffy the next day. That's the best case scenario if you ate these things. <laughs> the worst case scenario is you're one of the reported 25 people who had their gallbladders removed as a result. People were headed to the hospitals with elevated liver levels, 
intense stomach pain, fevers, basically constellations of symptoms that their doctors could not explain, which led a number of them to saying, okay, we'll try your gallbladder. Wow. Okay, so if you are one of these incredibly unlucky people having really severe illness, you know you're sick, but how did we trace this as an outbreak? Like, how do you connect those people and say, oh, I think that the source of this is daily harvest rather than, you know, just assuming, ah, oh, there's oysters I had or seafood was, was off. The short answer is TikTok. <laughs> so what's funny about this story to me is that it started out very personally. A friend of mine who is an influencer was hospitalized for a mysterious oh illness and now is down a gallbladder. And he discovered the connection the same way the rest of us did. A TikTok from a woman named Abby Silverman. She works for Cosmopolitan. And she had received one of these PR packages. And in the TikTok, she said, I threw it out after I ate it and went to the hospital with some of the worst GI pain I've ever experienced. I don't totally know if this is what happened, but I would not eat these if I were you. And I feel it's important I tell people. And that TikTok blew up and created sort of a community of lentil eaters who used that TikTok and its comment sections to connect and discuss and start to piece together timelines and lists of symptoms, all the while they were waiting for really concrete answers from Daily Harvest. This was all happening organically in the absence of any official word, either from Daily Harvest or, say, from the traditional press or from the government, correct? Exactly. Daily Harvest initially, in my opinion, very much bungled how they handled this because they started off with... An email, but, you know, who checks their email, especially from a company you buy things from, and two, an Instagram post with a photo of another food that they sell, a non-contaminated food, <laughs> and the caption was something to the effect of, check out our link in bio for important information about the crumbles. <laughs> oh, wow. Which could have been, plausibly, the important information is they're really tasty and it's buy one, get one free this week. <laughs> like, that's what I would assume if I saw that from a brand on Instagram. I would not expect link to emergency recall in bio. I would expect right. a little bit more upfront information than that. At least a siren emoji or two. Maybe the puking face. <laughs> yeah, or the kind of like solemn genre of Instagram post that's like, we've had some time to like reflect. And they did eventually remove that post, post a different one in sort of a better tone, no picture. They have, as the process has gone on, got much better at handling the communication. But I think that initial attempt really made the customer base feel like they could not trust Daily Harvest in a way that we don't react to other food recalls. Because let's be honest, how many times this year have you heard that something in your crisper, lettuce, or your jar of peanut butter could kill you and you can't mm -hmm. eat it? This happens mm -hmm. all the time. It's not uncommon to have a food recall. What's uncommon is this direct-to-consumer brand that sort of didn't immediately say, hey, don't eat that. We should get into the brand here before we get into, I think, more of the details, right? Because that's sort of important. If there's a bib lettuce recall, I don't feel betrayed by bib lettuce. I do not feel like, you know, bib lettuce, I thought I could trust you, and this is what you've done. Daily Harvest, what kind of company is it? How do they sell themselves? So Daily Harvest was founded in 2015, and it is a clean-eating, vegan, direct-to-consumer. You want to eat healthy, but you don't have the time and energy because you're a busy girl boss. We got you covered. We will mail you your little smoothie cups. The cups are biodegradable because that's the energy we're talking. And it's an internet-native company. We're talking gorgeous Instagram ads, beautifully lit, beautiful homes. Aesthetic aspiration, I think, is a good way to describe mm -hmm. it. 
They are also a wildly successful company. They were labeled as a unicorn in 2021, and caveats apply when we throw that term around. But we are talking about a valuation of just north of a billion dollars. This is not a tiny smoothie operation. This is a very legitimate enterprise. Do you think the fact that the company had all this really appealing marketing made the story more appealing when it came out that people were getting food poisoning? Like, do you think there's sort of a tendency for people to poke at the aspirations of people who are into this, like clean living, plant-based diet stuff, and especially people who are on social media projecting a certain lifestyle? Absolutely. And I think that projection is really important. When you shop at Daily Harvest and you're paying a premium for this quote-unquote healthy, beautiful, aspirational food, the stakes are a little higher. And if you fell for it, it's a little easier to poke at. Because, yeah, I mean, usually when we hear about mass illness, like an outbreak of a severe illness, the reaction is unalloyed sympathy. People usually don't feel schadenfreude or yeah. think it's funny. They don't usually kind of uh, joke around about a mass recall with health. And I mean, obviously, maybe we're being too glib here, too. But there are reasons why you can't help but find it at least slightly amusing. Well, we do have to address the names. First of all, <laughs> right. the organ harvest joke writes itself. It's not <laughs> Great. <laughs> and I do think the morbid curiosity we're describing of people being more interested in this because it is this bougie brand of sorts was paired with a lot of sympathy and concern. In talking to my friend who lost his gallbladder and in watching TikToks and content from other people, it does really feel like this community has rallied behind its own, especially given the number of lawsuits that are now uh, underway. I want to go back to the TikTok aspect of this. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on TikTok, but I am aware of TikTok having a scarily efficient algorithm that kind of funnels you towards stuff that people who are like you are doing. Is that part of the discovery process here? Are like people who consume Daily Harvest all already following each other? Or is there something about TikTok that allowed them to connect very quickly when this happened? It's certainly the latter. The TikTok algorithm is scary good. So for example, if you are someone who has demonstrated any interest in the past in veganism, in clean living, in healthy food, in pretty aesthetics, TikToks in that vein will find you. Also, people use TikTok as a search engine, young people yeah. these days. Mm -hmm. That's where they go to find out what is going on. And I can't totally blame them. Look, far be it for me to trust what a corporation is telling me. You want to find out what's going on to the people eating this food, you go to the place where you can hear from the people eating this food. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the fascinating part of this. And, you know, Laura and I are geriatric millennials, so we uh, are alienated and terrified of TikTok. And the idea that uh, people use it as a news source, but uh, that's genuinely, I mean, people turn to it for you know, sort of not just entertainment, but for news and commentary. And what I find fascinating about this story is that you generally hear about that in a purely negative sense, in a sort of ominous way about how TikTok is the home of misinformation, about how TikTok <laughs> is the home of hoaxes, health misinformation, just all sorts of like quack nonsense or whatever. But in this case, TikTok and then also Instagram and Reddit communities were your only actual source of reliable information about this for some time, which is a real turnaround from how these places are usually portrayed in the legacy media. 
Absolutely. I think what's important here is that those places often serve very well niche communities. So if you have an autoimmune condition, for example, that only a small amount of the population has, there aren't a ton of experts in the medical field who cover it, a great place to find answers is going to be Reddit, is going to be TikTok. Mm -hmm. And they may not all be accurate and they may not all work for you, but that's your best bet. And that's what we're seeing here with Daily Harvest, because while this is a recall on a large scale, we're talking about under a 1,000 people impacted based on the numbers we have now, which in the scheme of things is a very small group. So where does the story stand now? Obviously, the London elite crumbles have been withdrawn, but what's the state of affairs? Like, what's the company doing? And what are these people who presumably are now recovering? What action do they take next? So the company voluntarily recalled the product. It took about a month from the beginning of this kerfuffle to an answer. And the answer as it stands is that Daily Harvest have identified something called terra flower, which is from the South American terra tree, as the the problem child of the ingredients list. Still more questions on that. But as of now, Consumer Reports is advising you don't eat anything with that flower in it. I feel like that should be easy to avoid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not in everything. But yeah, but uh, yeah, obviously you wouldn't have known. <laughs> when you're ordering something called lentil and leek crumbles, you feel like you're, you know, you don't know there's going to be some weird root in it that will uh, end up with you losing an organ. So Exactly. I feel like it should be easy for me to avoid terra flower, but I also have no idea in w- which circumstances I might encounter it. I don't know. I'm still eating hot dogs out of the package. Like, think some, <laughs> something's going to kill me. It's okay. Daily Harvest has said the rest of its foods are completely safe. But the internet all at once has the longest memory on earth. It never forgets. And at the same time, it forgets everything almost immediately. So it will be very interesting to see how Daily Harvest's reputation weathers this storm. They recently had a round of layoffs. I was reading a piece in Fortune that reported the company attributed to the recession, to which I say, sure, Jan. Uh, (laughs) But it does seem like the next year is going to be incredibly critical for this company because I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone who encountered this story to want to purchase any of the other safe foods from this company when there are plenty of other DTC vegan smoothie fish in the sea. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're describing Daily Harvest as a huge success story, but it's like when Chipotle has a huge recall, people might stop going to Chipotle for a while, but like the company itself is not in danger. Daily Harvest, as you say, has all of these competitors that could take over their space pretty quickly because the service they're offering is one that seems pretty easy to emulate. Exactly. I'm back at Chipotle. Cadoba never got my money. But (laughs) if I decide to become one of those aspirational vegan, healthy folks, and I really do hope at some point in my time on this planet I will, I'm going to look elsewhere. All right, Madison, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Good luck to all of your gallbladders. (laughs) After the break, we'll be back to talk about how the lentil and leek crumbles fiasco fits into a larger pattern of food poisoning in the U.S. In the first half of the show, we've been talking about the Daily Harvest recall, but food poisoning is a problem that goes far beyond a single product or a single known ingredient. In fact, food poisoning is very common in the United States. We're talking now with Helena Bottomilla-Evich, who wrote a long investigated feature for Politico in April about problems at the FDA, the regulatory body that oversees food safety. Helena, what are some of the most commonly contaminated foods and what kind of illnesses do we see here in the U.S.? It's a great question. I think 
food safety is one of those things we kind of take for granted and don't think about a lot, but we do have quite a large burden of foodborne illness in the U.S. It's about 48 million people each year that get sick. Uh, about 128,000 are hospitalized and 3,000 die. That's according to the CDC's best estimate. And the big caveat you have to put with all of this is it's very difficult to pin uh, foodborne illnesses down to specific foods. That said, though, the foods that tend to, you know, have the most foodborne illness outbreaks are the ones that we're told to eat more of, like leafy greens, lettuce, meats, poultry, dairy. Those can be contaminated with E. coli or salmonella, and we see those repeatedly have foodborne illness outbreaks, but those are also the foods that the government tells us to eat more of. So it's a little bit of a tricky thing to communicate. Well, this is something I find really intriguing because I grew up associating outbreaks of stuff like E. coli with eggs or fresh meat. And only recently do I remember really reading about an outbreak of E. coli in lettuce and thinking, how does that happen? Like what in lettuce or leafy vegetables or even strawberries could harbor these kinds of diseases? What's going on there? Yeah, so it's oftentimes it's adjacent to cattle production or the water might be getting contaminated from nearby cattle or wildlife intrusion. And just to clarify, so the presence of the cattle in fields adjacent to leafy green crops, it's their excrement that's contaminating the water that's being used to irrigate those crops. Yeah. And to my knowledge, that doesn't happen in, say, the EU. One thing that's really tricky about comparing food safety in the U.S. to other countries is all of the systems are pretty different, both in terms of how they maybe regulate on farm or don't, and then also how they actually track foodborne illnesses and investigate them. Certainly U.S. growers like love to say we're the safest in the world, and some people just dispute that. So <laughs> it's a tough thing to, to mm -hmm. compare, but the centralization or the, the really large-scale processing of fruits and vegetables, leafy greens in particular, I think makes it particularly difficult because if you have one um, contamination event. It's just spread across many, many states. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And if the United States government wanted to make that food supply safer, are there measures that they could put in place? There's a lot of focus on, on this, both from the industry and the government. It's taken a really long time to get um, water standards in place. So we mentioned, you know, how cattle could potentially contaminate leafy greens in one way is water. So if irrigation channels are running open air and you have birds or dust or even just like rainwater, you can see how bacteria could spread that way. So it's taken FDA more than 10 years to put in safety standards for water and really imposing things that growers have to do. That said, there are private sector things that they have tried to do to better get a handle on this. A lot of retailers have put pressure on leafy greens growers to like have more distance between their growing operations and cattle, for example. So there are things being done, but we really have not solved the problem. I think that's the bottom line. Why does it take 10 years to come up with water safety rules? Yeah, great question. There's a lot of reasons. There's like bureaucracy, there's inertia. To be fair to FDA, it's really complicated to think about how you regulate like agricultural water. They did come up with an initial stab at this and it was widely panned as being 
extremely complicated. Like it required farmers to do logarithmic equations. To, <laughs> like I'm not joking. <laughs> like, so everyone sort of agreed like this is not it. And that set this back years. We all probably remember like the big peanut butter salmonella outbreak or like the big spinach E. coli outbreak in 2006. Well, those events did spark some bipartisan legislation and FDA completed some of those things, but some of those regulations took a very long time. That law was signed by Obama in January 2011, and we're still waiting on some of those regulations to be actually implemented. So over the last few years, we've been thinking about the FDA mostly in terms of like drug approval and vaccines and and medicine. But what is the FDA's actual food purview? How does it regulate food? I think part of the story of Daily Harvest is most people think if you're selling something, the FDA has said it's safe to consume. It's not quite that simple, though, is it? Yeah. So I know it's a hard one. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 one of those things where I it's just so clear if you talk to any consumer that there's a really big gap between what consumers think FDA does and what FDA actually does. So FDA has jurisdiction over about 80% of the food supply, which is like a massive undertaking, right? So that's everything from imported seafood to mid-sized food manufacturers making pretzels to the fresh produce growing in <laughs> our salad bowls. Um, it's its an incredible, it's hundreds of thousands of facilities, both in the U.S. and also abroad. And for the most part, FDA is not inspecting all that regularly. Like it's not unusual for it to be every few years. We saw recently with infant formula, they were supposed to be getting inspected every year. And during COVID, they scaled back a lot of those inspections. So, but I think if you were to ask the average person, like, oh, how often is an infant formula plant inspected? They'd probably say, oh, probably pretty often. I don't know. That just seems like mm-hmm. something the government would be on. So I just think there's this big gap between like what we think they do and what they actually do. And then just to clarify, because we're talking about what the FDA does and doesn't do, you say 80% of the food, what's the 20% of the food supply the FDA isn't responsible for? Mostly meat. But FDA also handles nutrition and like food additives and things like that. And and actually one of the issues at hand with what we think might be the problem with daily harvest, the terra flower, we think that was a, a essentially a generally recognized as safe ingredient mm. and generally recognized as safe or grass, as we call it in food world, is essentially food companies and industry experts and outside experts and scientists just considering something literally generally recognized as safe. They can notify FDA like, hey, we have determined the X ingredient is grass and they can send them a letter and FDA can say, we don't have any questions about this. And that is about as much like oversight as you'll get in that space. But you can self-determine grass or determine with experts a grass status without notifying FDA. So it's really different from the drug approval process where oh, completely. you are submitting yes. something and then it's being actively reviewed and then it makes a list and now this is okay. Right. And so, and also FDA has a process for food additives, but that process can be so cumbersome and take so long that companies tend to just go through the grass process. It's like a loophole you can drive a truck through. That's how <laughs> the consumer advocates see it. Those in the industry will say, The process isn't as abused as you would think because food companies don't want to make people sick. That's against their interests, right? They can be sued. And we see plenty of litigation over things like this. So it's not that there are no checks on it, but it's certainly one of those things. I think when you tell a consumer about that, they're like, wait, that's how it works? 
Right. So I think a lot of people would think they are checking stuff is safe before it goes out. Whereas the way the system actually works is it's quite easy to get a product to market. And then if it makes people sick, that's when there might be an investigation, there might be some lawsuits. So you're sort of the guinea pig if you're going to try a new food. It's a really like big philosophical difference that I think we have with Europe, which Europe really employs more of what's called the precautionary principle, which is more like you can't put it on the market unless you can really prove that something doesn't have issues, doesn't cause harm. And in the U.S., we're much more unless we have evidence of harm. It's kind of the opposite. In your piece, you mentioned that FDA officials have this kind of joke that the F in the FDA is a silent F. Is there a sense that the food branch is kind of neglected within the agency, that it gets less funding and less attention since there's been so much emphasis on COVID vaccines? Is there a sense that the agency is kind of straining under doing all that work? And would that affect the food part of the organization? It is such a backseat issue in the agency and has been for a long time, definitely before COVID. But I think COVID really exacerbated that dynamic. Like we've been in a you know global emergency and all of that has gotten a lot of attention, but it, I think it has reminded some folks on the food side too of just how, how lopsided the focus is within FDA. And what we're seeing now is a lot of like industry, consumer and advocacy groups, along with like environmental groups, like a really broad coalition is coming together and basically saying, we really need FDA to like reboot, have better leadership. I mean, it sounds like there are so many factors in play here in terms of securing a safe food supply. And it's natural to go to the FDA and just say, we need regulation. But in your view, what is the biggest thing the U.S. could do to avoid these shortages and outbreaks and generally improve the safety of what we eat here? Such a good question. I think there's a lot of debate about what should be done. And probably each commodity is different in terms of what they need. I don't think there is a silver bullet on any of this. When it comes to infant formula, I think there is going to be more focus on whether or not FDA's oversight is stringent enough. I think that's a fair place to look. I think Congress eventually will probably take another look at all of this. But honestly, it will probably take some sort of catastrophic crisis. That's usually what we see. We usually see some Mm -hmm horrific event that spurs, you know, a fresh look. Our system's very reactive. So just have to wait for the next catastrophic event then, and then we can we can finally take care of food regulation in this country. I hesitate to think <laughs> about what that would be. I mean, this daily harvest thing, FDA, it, I think they recalled it June, mm-hmm. mid-June. It's been months, and we still do not have an answer, an official answer from FDA. I know Daily Harvest has put out what they think it is, but I mean, hundreds of people, sick, hundred-ish hospitalized. If it takes FDA months to nail the same ingredient that Reddit did within days, I think that's going to be really embarrassing. (laughs) As it should be. Well, thank you so much for taking us through all of this. Yeah, anytime, you guys. Thank you. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.